Peace be with you. It's a, it's a great privilege. I'm, I'm joyful to be here with you this morning. Uh, but I'm especially grateful as well that I have the privilege, the sobering privilege of preaching God's word to you after about a year of not being behind this pulpit. If for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Carlos and I'm a church planting resident here. And so basically what that means, that means that I'm undergoing a season of training, of equipping, uh, being raised up as a, as a pastor, as a leader, as a church planter, as a shepherd, uh, so that by God's grace, uh, in, in, the, in the near future, uh, I'll be commissioned out by Sojourn Heights with a core group of people to plant another local expression of the body of Christ, another church in a different part of Houston's urban core, um, that being East End. So part of that residency is having the opportunity to preach here at Sojourn Heights uh, and grow as a preacher as well. So I'm grateful to Sojourn uh, for this opportunity. So let's get, let's get right into it, right? I'm, I'm a huge, huge Houston sports fan. Some of you who know me know how much, like, right, uh, how much clothes I have, how many hats I have that, that just represent all Houston sports teams, right? And for the last several years, I feel like the Texans have been sort of a, a thorn in my flesh, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's terrible, right? They, they've, one year, I remember they were expected to, to, to go deep in the playoffs, even reach the Super Bowl, and we just totally bombed that year. Um, so although I'm still a diehard Texan fan, I, it's, it's not a surprise to me that I mean, a lot of you guys think that we're getting in the playoffs. We're not getting in the playoffs. I mean, come on, let's, let's face it, right? I mean, we have to win. Two other teams have to win. One of those teams, one of their best players got in. I mean, a bunch of stuff has to happen for us to get in the playoffs. We're not getting in. And it doesn't surprise me that we're at that place anymore, even having a guy like Watt, having a guy like Johnson, and having a guy like Foster. It doesn't surprise me. And that's just a humorous, small example. But I know we can come up with several different scenarios in which we, we had a certain expectation for, for people or for, for things, right? And they fell short to meet those expectations. And they've fallen short so many times that we've begun to kind of expect them to fall short of the expectation that's been set. But thank, thank God that he's not like that, right? Thank God that not only does he meet our expectations, but he, he always, or not our expectations, but he always meets the expectations that he has set in his word and his promises to his people, but he, he exceeds what we thought that he would ever do. And we'll see that this morning in the book of Hosea. Some of you guys who, who know me personally know that this past year for me has been, by so far, has been the darkest season of my Christian walk. And, and my natural inclination, our natural inclination, is not one of, of complete trust in God when suffering suddenly strikes us, right? Our natural inclination is to doubt. Our, our natural inclination when suffering strikes is for us to be surprised and, and to ask what, what's going on, and we begin to doubt whether God is, is truly with us, right? And we're indoctrinated by our culture as well to believe that the happiness is the truth. If I hear that song one more time, I, I don't know what's going to happen. So, no, but, but seriously, we're, we're, that's why that song is so popular, because we do believe that happiness is the truth, so that when we're struck with depression, when we're struck with anxiety, when we're struck with all sorts of painful suffering, 
the last thing we do is, is call that something good, much less an act of love from God. But this morning, God, through the prophet Hosea, wants to realign our hearts to this truth, that God, in his grace and love, both strips and replenishes his people to refine them. That God, in his grace and love, both strips and replenishes his people to refine them. And the text this morning is calling us to look at both self-inflicted and God-inflicted suffering square in the face and have the courage to trust God in the middle of it. And the only way that this is possible is for us to, to take our focus off of ourselves right, and, and focus on and gaze upon Christ and who he is for us because, as I stated already, off of our natural inclination, we are prone to doubt. So we'll be looking at three things here, three points. Point number one is the wilderness, and this is derived from verse 14. Point number two is the valley, verse 15. And point number three, the husband, verse 16. So for our first point, let's look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So to give you some, some context of of the book of Hosea in a very broad sense, chapters one through three, uh, Hosea's marriage is used here as a parable uh, to, to kind of show or describe God's relationship with Israel, with the dominant image being Israel as an unfaithful wife. And for chapters four through 14, we, we hear a series of accusations, warnings, appeals, and enticements for God's people to return to him However, we do see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, God exposing Israel's adultery, right? And we, and we see him list ways in which Israel has been unfaithful, which is why verse 14 is so confusing and illogical to the human mind. See, right after God lists ways in which Israel has been unfaithful, he begins a list of what he will do in response because of that. And so we... We, we start with this word, therefore, and every time we see this word, therefore, we ask, why is it therefore? Because a shift has taken place. And so we can't understand what proceeds this word without first looking at what precedes this, this verse. So naturally, when we look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, we would naturally think that God's response would be to to forsake Israel, to divorce Israel, to cast her away, but no. Instead, he states he will allure her into the wilderness and there speak tenderly to her. And this shatters our earthly view of love. This, this shatters our earthly view of love. What does this tell us about the God that we have? It tells us that we have a God who, who does not sweep our sin under the proverbial rug and speaks peace to us when there is none. But no, we have a God who does thoroughly point out our sin, but offers grace and love and restoration with tender words. So what is this text calling us to then? If Hosea was here, I believe this is what he would want to communicate to us, that because we have a God who showers us with this illogical form of love, we can trust him 
in our darkest seasons, knowing that he has not distanced himself to, to teach us a lesson, right? But that he's actively involved and working in and through us in the midst of the darkness. What he's calling us to is, is this redeemed gazing. You can thank Pastor Brandon for that one. See, when we're captivated by Jesus, we, we look at our suffering through the lens of Jesus. When we're captivated by Jesus, we look at our suffering through the lens of Jesus. When we're captivated by our suffering, we look at Jesus through the lens of our suffering. When we're captivated by Jesus, we look at our suffering through the lens of Jesus. And we're cap when we're captivated by our suffering, we look at Jesus through the lens of our suffering. And fulfilling this call that this text gives us in light of Christ looks like us gazing upon this wondrous truth that that God's never-ending love, this, this never-ending love that God has for his bride, being enamored by him, crushing our false view of, of suffering and of going through these dark valleys, knowing that, that actually, in, rea in all reality, God, in his love for us, loves us too much to not discipline us. He loves us too much to not draw us out into the wilderness to prune us to produce Christ-likeness in us, and ultimately to increase our joy, which is in fact the greatest act of love that he can, he can show his people, that he would increase our joy in him. But how does this, how does this look for us, though? It looks like, it looks like us still striving and, and hustling hard to find another job when we've been laid off or fired, knowing the responsibility we have to provide for ourselves, for our family, if, we, if we're married, while not being consumed by anxiety. Because we know that everything that's taken from us or everything that is allowed in our life is first filtered through the lens or the filter of God's, God's perfect love for us. It looks like us looking at a life-threatening illness in the face because our life here on earth and our life after death is secure and hidden in Christ. It looks like us viewing our darkest seasons as, as God producing in us holiness and Christ-likeness and increasing our joy in him, like us finding peace in the midst of, for those married, in a, in a chaotic marriage while still striving for reconciliation, for understanding, and for unity, knowing that God did not give up on his union with us, as, as the book of Hosea beautifully reveals. If you're, if you're sitting here this morning and maybe you're, you're not a Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're not a Christian in this room, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Christ, someone who has placed their faith their entire life in Christ. You may be looking at, at these, these next few things maybe for your ultimate satisfaction. How good your marriage is, how successful you are at work, how much money is in your bank account, how obedient your children are or how successful they will be in the future. 
maybe what other people think of you, right? And, and fearing that if these things were to collapse, then your peace, your satisfaction, your, your, your feeling of worth would, would cease to exist. But I want you to listen to this, that, that Christ offers you much more than this in spite of your earthly circumstances. No matter how bad things may get, because, because the truest form of purpose, the truest form of purpose is knowing what God created you for, and the deepest sense of peace is knowing who you are in Christ and who Christ is for you, regardless of earthly circumstances. But we find that the more we look into our own heart, the more we look at ourselves, we, we quickly realize that, that it goes against our fallen nature for our default to be trust in God in the midst of, of, of excruciating pain, suffering, and darkness. When sin entered the world, we read this in Genesis 3, our hearts were darkened, our eyes were dimmed, Sin entered our hearts, ravaged them, and took us captive. Since then, mankind has been on a constant search for satisfaction outside of God and outside of his provision. John Calvin, a French theologian and pastor from the Protestant Reformation, said that our hearts are idol factories. And, and God, through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick are wicked, and he asks, who can know it? And the answer to that is that the Lord is the one who searches the heart, and, and he is the one who tests the mind. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So our hearts were darkened, our eyes were dimmed, and because of this, we now see God. We have a shattered view of God, of others, and of ourselves. And the disposition of our heart is, is now one of doubt, of distrust because of this. We fail at trusting God because we, we buy into the lie that suffering, depression, whatever form of, of a wilderness that you may go through, is, is God actually distancing himself from us for a season, looking at us from afar, we're no different than the people of Israel. When they were brought through the wilderness, they, <clears throat> they complained, they, they longed for Egypt even, and they doubted whether God was truly actively involved and engaged in the wilderness. After God having time and time again showed them, he, he showed them his faithfulness, he showed them that he was with them, and they continued to doubt. We fail because our hearts are prone to believe that comfort, earthly prosperity, happiness are marks of God's presence and blessing. Now, we may be quick to reject the prosperity gospel in word, and, and we do here at Sojourn, but our hearts may betray us and expose that in, in, in reality, within our hearts, we, we're believing a form of a, a subtle prosperity gospel with our actions, our thoughts, and our emotions. If we're acting solely upon 
the basis of our natural instinct. We, we default to anxiety when we lose our job. We, we default to depression or, or feeling worthless if our, our marriage is in shambles or we go through a painful breakup. We, we feel worthless and purposeless and meaningless if we're not successful at our job or if someone else is doing our job uh, much better than we are. When we fail to fulfill the call that this text has for us, to trust God when everything else looks dark. But there is one. There is one who fulfilled this call. There is one who looked at suffering square in the face and trusted the Father, and this is Jesus. And with this, we go to our second point, the valley. We'll be looking at verse 15. I'll read it for you. And there I will give, you, give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. We have, we have a, a God here who, who, in the midst of his bride, Israel's rebellion, promised to bring them out into the wilderness and speak tender words to her, give her her vineyards, and out of this dark valley bring hope. And brothers and sisters, in God's dealing with us, he, he does the same. There's, there's a, a point in time where every Christian walks through a dark season, a dark night of the soul, where we seem to feel crushed. We, we seem to feel like uh, all of God's graces have been stripped from within us and we're brought low and, and driven out into this spiritual wilderness, our own valley, if you will. Yet our heart's knee-jerk reaction is to believe the lie that God has distanced himself from us, that he's in a sense, taking a step back and is looking at us to see how we will react, whether we'll fail or whether we will succeed. But yet we, we, we may not believe that God has totally abandoned and forsaken us because our theology may not allow us to believe that. But with our hearts, we may feel that God has, has distanced himself from us. But we'll see that that is far from the truth. Let's look at this text a little more closely. We see that First, God allures Israel. Then he brings her into the wilderness, and, and there he speaks tenderly to, to his bride and, and promises to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And Achor uh, simply means, means trouble. This is a, a reference by the prophet Hosea, referencing the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 7. But really, the, the story begins in chapter 6, where God, through, through the through Joshua, commands the people of Israel to, to destroy the city of Jericho, right? But, but he tells them to, to spare Rahab and her household, and then he also tells them to, to, to save the silver, the gold, the bronze, and the iron, and to deposit that into the treasury of the Lord. But we have a, a man by the name of Achan who, who disobeyed God and took some of the, the things that were to be de devoted to destruction, and he hid them under his tent. And of course, he was, he was found out, he was called out, and because, because of this sin, God's anger burned against the people of Israel. We, we read that in Joshua, and because Achan troubled Israel with his sin, God troubled him, and he ended up getting stoned to death in this valley, which was then named the Valley of Achor. So 
So picture Israel hearing Hosea speak these words. When, he, when, when, when they heard him say the valley of Achor, they thought of a valley of, of, of death because of their sin. They thought of a dark, a grim place. Yet out of this valley of death, God promises them to, to make a door of hope. But how, how could God possibly make a door of hope out of a valley of death? We see, we see this fulfilled in Jesus. See, where we fail to trust, Jesus succeeded by perfectly trusting the Father through divine suffering. Jesus himself went through the most excruciating pain, agony, right? separation from the Father on the cross on our behalf so that those who repent and believe in Jesus would never be forsaken by God, ever. And he also experienced the feeling of, of being abandoned by his closest friends when he needed them the most for the first time in eternity Brothers and sisters, on the cross, God was abandoned. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, was alone on that cross. So we look at the cross as the true valley of Achor where Jesus was punished on behalf of his people for their sin, actually, not for his own, and their suffering death, all on our behalf. He did this with joy. He, for, the, for, for the joy that was set before him, like it says in Hebrews 12, he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. We have in Jesus a Lord who was himself drawn out into this wilderness on earth, never doubting the Father's presence, experiencing this true valley of Achor on the cross, then rising again in victory over sin and death. And he perfectly fulfilled this call to trust the Father in his darkest hours here on earth. And where we failed to trust God in our darkest hours, as I said, Jesus succeeded and he did this in our place. And here, here we have a beautiful gospel that says that God, that we gave God every reason to forsake us like the song we sung earlier says, all things in me call for my rejection, but all things in you plead my acceptance. We gave God every reason to forsake us, to write up a certificate of divorce, to cast us off in our shame. But instead, he does the complete opposite. He decides to enter into this world humbly, live a perfect, live in perfect obedience to the law of God, then go up to the cross and, and, and suffer God's wrath for our sin, dying on that cross, then rising from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death on our behalf. And he does this for us. He, he gives it to us. He credits it to us when we believe in him and, and because the cross is the true valley of Achor, and when we walk through this door of hope, which is Christ, God changes our hearts. He radically transforms our desires 
And now we have the ability to see Jesus through new eyes. And this is where we reach our final point, the husband. I'll read verse 16 for us. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So after, so after we walk through this, this door of hope, right, we're now able to call God our husband and not merely our, our Baal. Baal was an ancient pagan god that, that you had to consistently appease, but because Jesus appeased the Father perfectly for us, we no longer have to look at God as, as a God, we have to constantly appease with our good works so that we may find favor. And we can look at him intimately. We can look at him as our husband. To give you a, a brief, just a brief background, uh, the, the people of Israel were calling God Lord using this word Baali. And, and this, this word does also mean husband, but, but God tells them that, that they will no longer use this word that the pagans use to, to call him but they will use a different word, which in, in the Hebrew would be ishi, I-S-H-I. But this, this word invokes thoughts of a loving, of a caring husband, while Baal invokes a thought of a, a more lordly, imperious husband. So he was telling them, you'll look at me as your husband, but a loving and, and caring husband. So God here assures his people that he will remove the names of the false gods from their mouth. And here we have a beautiful uh, picture of God in his love doing a painful work of sanctification, drawing them out into the wilderness, removing them from all their idols, getting them into, bringing them into the wilderness to get their attention. And there, instead of accusing them, speaks tender words to them. What does this look like for us today? It, 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 it means that if, if we look at God outside of Christ, we will constantly see him as someone we have to appease with our good works to find favor so that if we, and if we go through suffering, if we go through dark seasons, viewing God this way, having to appease him with our good works, when suffering strikes, we'll look at it as, as God punishing us as God's wrath or God forsaking us, standing afar from us in a sense. But if we, if we look at him, if we look at God through the lenses of Jesus, we see that Jesus has already gone before us. We see that Jesus has already gone through that pain. We see that Jesus suffered himself on our behalf. But because of that, he's an empathetic, sympathetic high priest for us so that now we can trust him that when we go through our wilderness, it's not, in fact, God distancing himself from us, looking at us from afar, waiting to see what our next move will be, whether we'll fail or, or pass his test. But it's actually God himself in his love drawing us out into the wilderness and there walking with us as a, as a loving husband would do to his wife when she goes through dark times. And you see, a loving husband would stand there next to his wife and not forsake her when she needs him the most. And so God here does this for us. And we can view God in this way only through the lens of Jesus, one who has gone before us and has already fulfilled this in our place. 
And only then can we begin to focus on things outside of ourselves instead of our, on, on our own suffering. And we begin to focus on Jesus. And we also begin to focus on Jesus' mission. Even in our darkest hours. See, our suffering, our valleys, our, our, our wilderness is not meant just for our good, brothers and sisters. It's meant for the good of our neighborhoods. It's meant for the good of our cities. And, and here... And here's the vision for us. That we would see our suffering through the lens of Jesus in such a way that the outside world looks in and sees that our greatest joy, our greatest peace, our greatest satisfaction does not come from earthly circumstances, but rather from God who, who joyfully moved into the slum known as this earth and, and went before us and took upon himself the sin of his people on the cross. But while he was on earth, he himself being drawn out into the wilderness so that we know we have a God who's not just transcendent, but was also imminent. A God that was not just far off in the, right, in the heavens, so far away from us, transcendent, but also imminent. He came near, he came close to his people. We celebrated that through Advent and Christmas. Our world preaches the power of positive thinking, right? good vibes and the pursuit of happiness at all costs. But, but the brokenness of this world will quickly debunk those ideologies that really sound more like, like fantasies. But because of Jesus, we can, we can be the most realistic people without, without being pessimistic, we, we can also be the most optimistic people without being naive. We can be in our suffering through Jesus. We can be the most optimistic people without being pessimistic, yet also be the most optimistic people without being naive. I recently went to lunch with uh, one of my coworkers during, during lunch break, and, and uh, she was sharing with me, she's not a believer, uh, she was sharing with me out of how this year went, um, and she listed so many accomplishments. She she listed that she she earned her master uh, a master's degree and was looking to go back to to get another one. And she even uh, moved to the the villages of Kenya to live amongst the villages uh, on a medical volunteer trip. Right, and, and she's listing all these things and said, yeah, the, it was it was a pretty good it was a good year. But she said this, and this stuck with me. She said but there has to be something more than this. There has to be something more than this. And what a privilege it is, brothers, that we get to be mouthpieces for the Lord. We get to be mouthpieces for him, even through our suffering, and point people to the Christ who offers abundant life in him, to agree with people like my coworker that yes, there is something more than earthly accomplishments. There is something more than earthly prosperity, both material and relational. There is more to life than happiness here on earth and pointing them to Jesus. That's the privilege that we have 
even as we go through our suffering. And brothers, when we go through suffering and we point people to Jesus while they see how dark our life is, that makes Jesus look glorious, not us. It makes Jesus the center of our life, not even our faith in him, but rather Jesus' faith, faithfulness to us. And that makes Jesus look glorious. Christ calls you and I, whether Christian or non-Christian, to this redeemed gaze and to be captivated by Jesus so that you look at your suffering through the lens of Jesus instead of looking at Jesus through the lens of your suffering. And because Jesus ultimately fulfilled this, having experienced the wilderness, having gone through the true valley of Achor and creating a door of hope for us through the cross, we can learn to make our default trust. So some of you, some of you here may, may be going through some, some intense suffering, whether it be internal or, or some circumstances have kind of turned your world upside down. And, and it's been been overbearing uh, emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually. Or some of you may, may be here this morning and, and say, you know, li life is pretty great for me right now. Things seem to be going my way. But in the back of your mind, um, you, you may have this fear that inevitably, right, you will eventually go through suffering. It's, you begin to look at your life and say, wow, everything is going well. When is that suffering going to strike? Because we know it will. But you don't, you don't have to fear. What if we believed in the tender words of God so much and were so sure of his perfect love and delight, <clears throat> excuse me, for us that we could look at our suffering square in the face knowing, <clears throat> excuse me, that this present and momentary affliction is creating in us an eternal weight of glory. His truth combats and defeats that subtle form of, of prosperity gospel that our hearts are prone to believe. Jesus, Ke Keller once said, Jesus didn't suffer, that we would never suffer, but he suffered so that when we do suffer, we can be made more like Jesus. And, and here we find the refinement take place by a God who, who loves us too much to not discipline us, a God who loves us too much to not draw us out into the wilderness to refine us. What if, what if, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we would be a people that, when, when persecuted or when, when afflicted, are not crushed? When perplexed, are not driven to despair? When persecuted, do not feel forsaken? And when struck down, no, we're not being destroyed. In and of ourselves, we fail. But where we fail, Jesus succeeded on our behalf. But not even just that. He succeeded on our behalf, but he, he gives us his Holy Spirit, fills us with his power, so that now we do have the ability through the power of the Spirit to begin to learn to make our default trust so that when suffering strikes us, we, we aren't surprised at, at this affliction, knowing that it's actually a refining. 
And, and this, as we, as we strive to, to live this out in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our parishes, being open with one another of where we're at, allowing our parish to come alongside us and walk with us through this. I, I know it was, it was God who, who, who brought me out, but I could not have done it without the help of my parish. And so God wants us to do this as a community, to walk together even through our suffering while not, not forgetting that our suffering is meant not just for our good, but for the good of our city, that the city would look in to this people and see that even in the midst of our life being broken and crushed, we begin to, to point to Jesus in the midst of that. And that makes Jesus look glorious. Bow your head and pray.